Well, good morning and welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to worship with you this morning through song. And now we're going to open up God's word together uh, and hear from the Lord this morning what he has for us. I'm going to invite Afua to come and read our sermon text out of Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for today. We give you thanks for bringing us here. God, we give you thanks for your steadfast love and faithfulness towards us that we've been singing about this morning. God, we pray that you'd help us now by your spirit and through your living and active word, help us, God, to see Jesus. And that as we see him, that you'd help us to be who he is calling us to be for your glory, for our good, and for the good of others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm guessing most of us have had situations, circumstances in our lives where we've experienced the intensity level rising. For instance, maybe playing a game with a group of people, maybe your family members, if you're super competitive, seen some raucous games of taboo over the years, right? You feel the intensity level picking up, or maybe it's been a time where you or one of your kids or something was playing in a sporting event. Whatever the situation is, we can see it building to a fever pitch or a tipping point where we aren't sure exactly what's going to happen next, but we know something is going to happen. When we experience those situations of rising intensity, it isn't something we just see, but we feel it. And maybe perhaps depending on our personality or our disposition, we might press in all the more as the intensity level picks up, or we might find ourselves pulling away to try and lower the temperature maybe back away from the proverbial ledge. A few weeks ago, we began a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, a book of the Bible where the chief goal is to show us who Jesus is and what it means to be one of his followers. And as we come to our text today, we see the intensity level is rising significantly surrounding Jesus, not because of a game or competition or some kind of work situation, but because of what Jesus has been saying and what Jesus has been doing. So what does Jesus do with this rising intensity? He doesn't lay low or back away. He gets more intentional. What we'll see is that out of a large and growing group of followers, Jesus chooses a small group of co-laborers. 
And these co-laborers are called to something. They're called to know him and then sent out to make him known. And the reality is, if you're a follower of Jesus, someone who has been saved by grace through faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for you, then you also are called to know him and sent out to make him known as well. Now, I know everyone here is not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're just checking out who Jesus is and you want to learn more about what it means to, to know God and have a relationship with him. And if that's you, I'm really glad that you're here, that God's brought you to be with us. You're in a good place, a right place. There's a room full of people that would love to help you learn what that looks like and what that means. And so my hope for you today is that as we walk through this text, that you would come to see Jesus and to know him as well. So no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, there's something for all of us to learn from God's word today. So let's jump into Mark chapter three and may God bless the preaching of his word. There really are two sections, two different things that are going on in this text, which will serve as our two points today. First, a large group of followers that we see in verses seven through 12. And then secondly, a small group of co-laborers that we see in verses 13 through 19. But before we get into this text, it's important to, for us to understand the situation. What's going on? Why is this intensity level rising? Well, we get that if we go back to verse six, of chapter three. Look at verse six of chapter three. It says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is a significant verse in the story that Mark is telling. As we heard last week, while many people are being personally impacted by Jesus's teaching, personally impacted by his healing ministry, some have hard hearts towards him, particularly the rel religious leaders of the day. So after Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, they decide they need to stop him. Enough is enough. So to do so, the Pharisees team up with the Herodians. Now this is a remarkable because of these two groups. They do not get along. The, the Pharisees were all about, at least in word, following God, worshiping him, trying to obey the law. The Herodians were in cahoots with the Roman government. They were trying to kind of get more political power and didn't really care so much about what it meant to be obedient to God and worship him alone. So you've got these opposing groups of people that had different agendas, different focus points coming together. Really, they're enemies of one another. But these enemies find a common enemy in Jesus. And they decide to work together to destroy him. The intensity level is indeed rising. So it's in light of that that we get to verse seven where it says Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So Jesus doesn't, does this not because he's fearful, not because he's afraid of these people, but because he's wise. See, Jesus came for a specific purpose. He came to redeem and to rescue, to seek and to save the lost. Now that things are heating up, it's time to be more strategic in order to reach the pinnacle and purpose of why he came but he doesn't get to spend much time alone with his disciples who most likely at this point, what that's referring to are those first few followers that he's called that we've seen, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Levi or Matthew. He doesn't get to spend a whole lot of time with them, just them because as we see in the first point here, a large group of followers begins to form. Again, verse seven and eight, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. 
Now, if we go back to Mark chapter one, we saw that Jesus began his ministry, not where most people would have expected, not in Jerusalem, in the center of uh, where the temple is and all those other things were happening, religious activity was happening. He began it in Galilee, north of that region, north of Jerusalem. But as he began this ministry, as he was preaching and teaching, as he was healing people and doing all kinds of miraculous things, word of Jesus began to spread far and wide. Not because he has a good publicity team, a good PR campaign. There's no YouTube, there's no social media, no 24-hour news coverage. CNN isn't showing up to record the latest thing that Jesus said or did. No, people's lives are being changed, radically changed. Word is spreading quickly from person to person, from town to town, so that now people are coming from places outside of Galilee to see Jesus from across the Jordan River, from the north, from the south, from all over the place to see him. Now, being a celebrity, it it can be hard. It's kind of maybe a weird thing to say, right? But we've probably seen stories or heard of celebrities who, though they have fame and fortune at some level, are grieving the fact that they've lost some sense of privacy in their life. They can't just go out to eat anymore or take a walk without the paparazzi or adoring fans hounding them. Well, Jesus' celebrity status is increasing, but he doesn't grieve it. He continues to engage those that he came to save. But as this large group of followers grows, Jesus recognizes he needs to change his method of engaging them. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. This large group is drawn to Jesus, drawn to him mostly for his healing. So they want to get close to Jesus. They want to be able to touch him in hopes that that he will relieve their distress, whatever it happens to be. But while Jesus is bringing the healing reign of the kingdom of God, while we're seeing the kingdom of God break in as Jesus is doing this restoring work, his present and primary purpose is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, that grace has come, that redemption is coming. So when Jesus gets in a boat here, it isn't a means of escaping the crowd. He isn't cr- trying to create distance from them where they can't get close to them. He's doing it so that they can, he can stand up and teach and they can hear him and they can see him. He wants them to hear the words that he's sharing with them, the good news that they can be redeemed and restored. The next verses act more as a summary statement than highlighting a specific instance Mark finishes up this section here by saying, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now this is a good point to ask, why is Mark writing what he's writing right here? Why is he talking about this in this particular part of his storytelling? Well, we have to first remember Mark is telling a story. On some some level, he's just advancing the narrative of the story about Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. But he's not just telling a story for story's sake. He's telling it for a reason. He wants us to know who Jesus is. Because when we know who Jesus really is, everything changes for us. And in this text, we learn more about who Jesus is. Jesus is a merciful and patient healer. We've seen that a lot already. But here, the unclean spirits, the demons, tell us why he's able to do that. Why he's able to heal. Because he is the very son of God. Now, people all over the region are taking notice. 
including, like we saw in verse six, even those who are not fans of Jesus. But here we see also that the spiritual world takes notice. The demons, they don't have to wonder who this man is. They're not saying, well, who is this guy? They know exactly who he is. He is the very son of God who's existed for all eternity with the Father and the Spirit, who was a part of calling all of creation into existence. They know exactly who he is. But here's the thing. Mark wants us to know who Jesus is. Jesus wants to know who he is. And here are these unclean spirits that know all of that. But Mark doesn't say that's a good thing. Jesus doesn't encourage it. Why? Pastor and author John Piper wrote this in his book, When I Don't Desire God. He said, God is glorified in his people by the way they experience him, not merely by the way we think about him. Indeed, the devil thinks more true thoughts about God in one day than a saint does in a lifetime, and God is not honored by it. The problem with the devil is not his theology, but his desires. In other words, the kind of knowing that Jesus invites people to is not merely information about him. It's not just head knowledge. He's inviting them to relationship with him, a relationship that's rooted in following Jesus in repentance and faith, a life of worship before our true God and true King. See, in recognizing him, the unclean spirits blurt out this truth about him again and again. But Jesus, he doesn't permit them to spread that word. He silences them. Why? Well, they don't have good intentions with their declaration. See, if the authorities find out that this man who's teaching with authority, who is healing and casting out demons, also claims to be the very son of God, then things are going to speed up in a way that Jesus doesn't want to happen yet because he isn't done with his mission yet. He's in control of the narrative. Things are heating up. The intensity level is rising with the religious political leaders seeking to destroy him. At the same time, an increasing group of followers around him. Jesus isn't overwhelmed. Instead, we see him intentionally and purposefully widen the breadth of his mission and his ministry. Out of this large group of followers, he calls a small group of co-laborers. Look at verses 13 through 15. It says, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The people of Israel are longing for restoration. They're longing for a revolutionary for someone to come in and overthrow their Roman oppressors, to give them political freedom. And revolutionaries often head to the mountains and the hills to plot and to plan. Here, Jesus heads to the hills too, because Jesus is indeed a revolutionary, but not in the way the people hoped, but exactly in the way they needed, in the way that you and I need. See, we learn through the words of the unclean spirits that Jesus is the son of God, Here, we learn that Jesus is the one who calls. I love that it says he called to himself those whom he desired and they came to him. I'm guessing most all of us have had the experience of applying for a job. Some of us have had the experience of applying for a college, trying to get in, or maybe we've tried out for a part in a play or a spot on a sports team. And we have to submit an application or go to a trial and show off our skill sets in order to be brought into that group, whatever that happens to be, to be offered that position. 
Here, there is no application. Jesus doesn't have this large group of people and say, guys, listen, I'm gonna create a little bit smaller group. If you are interested, we'll have an interest meeting. You can turn your application. Here's my email address. He doesn't do any of that. Right? There's no application process. There's no interview process, no resumes, no test scores to submit. He chooses these 12 people because they're exactly who he wanted to choose. The selection is done by Jesus alone. And when the king of kings calls you, you respond in obedience and in faith. Now, the fact that Jesus chooses 12 out of this larger group is not random. It's not like he had, I don't know, let's say there's 500 people there and he's like, I take more, but the rest of you don't meet, meet the standard I have. So 12 it is. No, he does this purposefully. Just like an NFL active roster can only have 53 players on it or an MLB active roster can only have 26 players on it, Jesus only called 12 because it had to be 12. Not more, not less. The word appointed here is important. We probably read this and think of things like a political appointment. But the word here in the original language actually means to make or to create. See, Jesus once again is doing something new. He's creating something new. And Mark wants to make sure that we understand this. In order to do that, we really need to go back to when God called Abraham. If we go back to Genesis chapter 12, we see God calls Abraham. Abraham wasn't submitting an application to be accepted by God. God sought him out. He called him to himself and he told Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of nations. I'm going to multiply your family and you, through you, are going, you're going to bless the nations. Abraham has a son named Isaac who has a son named Jacob who has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Throughout the history of God's people, these 12 tribes were important to his plans, important to his promises. But throughout the history of God's people, these 12 tribes often did not walk in faithful obedience or worship of God alone. And so we see in scripture that God sent judgment on his people through invading armies. 10 of the tribes had been lost to the Assyrian invasion and subsequent exile. Things do not seem to be going well. But a promise had been made through the prophets that a restoration of God's people would come. So what we see Jesus doing here when he calls these 12 men to himself to be his apostles communicated something to his Jewish audience. That Jesus wasn't simply here to heal, simply here to heal people. He was here to do something much bigger than that. He was here to bring restoration, but restoration at an even greater level than they could ever hope or imagine. See, the people longed for their nation state to be restored, but Jesus isn't concerned with preserving the nation state of Israel. As Mark mentioned last week, Jesus is not creating a new religion. He isn't concerned with borders and boundaries. What Jesus is doing is bringing the kingdom of God and calling a new people to himself a people from every tribe and every language and every nation, a people rooted in, as the author of Hebrews tells us, a better covenant, a better promise rooted in Jesus himself. These 12 then are a picture of a reconstituted, a true Israel where Jesus, not Jerusalem, not the temple is at the center. This means that the 12 that he's calling isn't so that Jesus can form like a, a posse or an entourage around him. He doesn't call these 12 because he's feeling lonely. No, he calls these 12 to begin the process of this new people with a specific purpose and a specific mission. And he tells us what that purpose and mission is in verses 14 and 15. 
Before we get to that, though, I want us to consider who these men are. He tells us their names in verses 16 through 19. Look at those, that list again. He says, he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boenerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, at first glance, this may seem like not more, much more than a list of names. In fact, some of these names, this is the only time they're mentioned in the New Testament. But for those who we do know something about, this is an interesting group of people. They are unique in many ways. They don't fit well together. They come from different backgrounds, even different beliefs. You've got blue-collar workers and white-collar workers. You've got sibling sets and hotheads. The most significant difference, though, might be between Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Levi is one who is working with the Roman government. He's excising taxes on his people in an oppressive way to fund the Roman government and keep a little bit for himself. He was not liked by the Jewish community. Then you have Simon the Zealot who wants to overthrow the Roman government, who has no desire to do anything with them, but do whatever he can to overthrow that government. And here they come together. They're on different sides of the aisle. Jesus brings them together. The Pharisees and the Herodians team up to try to destroy Jesus. But Jesus brings two opposing sides together, not to destroy, but to create a new people. That's what the gospel of grace does. It forms a beautiful community. That's what I long for us to be, for our church, that we have all of our differences and bring able to come together under the banner of grace, under the banner of King Jesus. It's also striking, though, that within this group is a man Jesus knows when he calls him will betray him. God's plans and purposes can never, ever be thwarted by sin and selfishness. If Jesus has dysfunction and significant sin within his small community, we should probably expect to have it in ours. When we experience it, instead of being disillusioned by it, we can go to him. He knows exactly what it's like to be betrayed or stabbed in the back. And I hope that could be helpful for you if you ever experience that comforting you that you can go to Jesus and he knows. He knows what it's like. So what exactly is he calling this group of men to do these apostles? He tells us in verses 14 and 15, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. I love that the first thing he calls them to do isn't a task, but relationship. He calls them to be with him. This gets back to knowing The demons knew who Jesus was, but they didn't have a relationship. They didn't have a desire to be with Jesus. Here, he's calling these 12 to be with him so that they might truly know him, both personally and intimately, to live life with him. In so doing, Jesus would teach them and guide them and equip them to represent the king and his kingdom. These men are going to have a front row seat to his life, every aspect of it, and a front row seat to his death, and a front row seat to his resurrection. And what they'll find out, what they'll learn, what they'll experience is indeed that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And it's out of the overflow of them being with Jesus that Jesus then will send them out. That's what the word apostle means. It means sent one. Jesus silenced the demons, but he sends the apostles. And he sends them to preach the gospel. 
of the kingdom of God. The same message that we saw back in Mark 1. That the kingdom of God is at hand to repent and to believe. He sends them out to cast out demons. He gives them the authority to do that. In other words, he sends them out to bring life in places of death. To bring light in places of darkness. He's calling these men to know him and then sending them out to make him known. Now we'll see all along the way that these 12 don't always get it. I mean, one of them, as we saw in verse 19, is going to betray him. But after Jesus goes to a Roman cross and is crucified in our place as a substitute for us in bearing the weight of our sin and then rises again from the grave, everything clicks into place. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, they get it and then they go. We see that in the book of Acts. We see that what happens with this small group of co-laborers is exactly what Jesus called them to do. The church is born and the gospel of grace spreads. They become fishers of men and women. They, they see people cross from death to life. In Acts chapter 2, we see Peter stand up and preach a sermon and thousands of people repent and believe. From there, the good news of the kingdom continues to spread. In Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John are brought before a religious council who's trying to stop them, the religious leaders are still trying to quell the message of the kingdom of God, but they are faithful in proclaiming it. Acts 4.13 4, says this, though. It says, now when they saw, this council saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized what? That they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. Jesus called them to be with him first and then to go and preach. And that's exactly what they do. See, Mark is telling us the story of Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. And in this section, he's showing us that while things are intensifying around Jesus, Jesus is intentional and he's purposeful. He's beginning to do something new that will have a global and eternal impact. Jesus knows that he's going to the cross he knows he's going to die. He also knows that he will rise again and he will ascend to the Father. And it will be these apostles who will begin to take the message of the kingdom of God to people from every tribe, every language, and every nation. There's a uniqueness to these men and their role. They are the apostles. They are the apostles. No one else. Aside from the replacement of Judas and the apostle Paul. How do we know that they have this unique role as an apostle? Well, it's unique because they saw Jesus in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. It's unique, and they're, they're unique in their role because Jesus gave them a unique authority to preach and cast out demons. And as we learn in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, we learn that Jesus' church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's their teaching that they've received from Jesus that the church is built on. And then we find out in Revelation chapter 21, when Jesus comes again to usher in the new creation and the new city, that the city has the names of the 12 tribes on its gate, and it has 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Nobody else's name is there. This isn't like the Stanley Cup. Right, where like it started off this big and over time it's just gotten bigger and bigger because we keep adding more and more teams and names to it. No, there's just these guys, just their names that are down. No one else. Jesus, just those who Jesus desired and called to himself to know him and make him known. Think about what that means though for us. You and I are here today 
that Redeeming Grace Church is here today, that other churches are faithfully here today preaching and hearing the same message of the gospel of grace. It's been preached for thousands of years. He, we're here today because of this moment in Mark chapter three. We are built on the foundation of the apostles' teaching and the cornerstone of the risen King Jesus. So what are we supposed to do with this? And what does this mean for us in our own lives as we go about our week this week? Like I said, the role and calling of the apostles is unique to these 12 in many ways, but it's also the same for us in many ways. There are no apostles today, but if we are followers of Jesus, then like the apostles, we are sent ones too. See, much of what Jesus is calling them to is a picture of discipleship, to be with Jesus and to tell others about him. And it's because of who Jesus is, because he called, because he sent the apostles that now we can go and do the same. But just like the apostles, we can't rush to going out if we aren't first seeking to be with Jesus, if we aren't knowing him. So what does it look like for us to know him? Well, the apostles got to live life with Jesus for about three years, spending every waking moment listening and learning. We don't have the opportunity that they did to see Jesus face to face, but Jesus knew that. So Jesus gave us means of grace for us to be able to be with him. He gave us his living and active word. He gave us the Holy Spirit, our helper. He gave us things like prayer and community and the gathering of the church to help us to live a life of faith and repentance, to live a life of following Jesus. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I, I didn't really understand this until I got into college. At the end of my junior year of high school, college, or uh, uh, senior year of high school, I, I started to spend more time praying, but spending time in God's word was kind of a foreign concept to me other than if it was on Sundays. When I got to college, I was challenged to think about the importance of reading and meditating on God's word in my freshman year. And I can tell you that that moment, that time had a radical impact on my life because it's through God's word that I've come to learn what it means for me to be who I am, what I do, what I think, how I live, how I engage those around me. God's living an active word. Now listen, I don't do that perfectly all the time. There are times I often don't desire to do it. But, but I know that it is for my good, always for my good to be with Jesus, to slow down to be with him. So let me ask you, how are you seeking to be with Jesus? How are you seeking to be with him? Not just to know about him, but to know him. What does that look like in your life? in the midst of the fullness and busyness that life is with all of its demands and distractions, let me encourage you, let's encourage and help one another to slow down and be with Jesus. It'll never be a waste of time. And listen, if you don't yet know Christ, I long for you to hear his call as well, that you would come and repent and believe in him. He is the son of God. He is the one who went to a cross to die in your place. And he is the one who calls you and invites you to himself even now. Continue to hang with us through this series so you can learn more about this great God and Savior that we worship. Brothers and sisters, it's only when we know Jesus that we can go and make him known. I mean, we like to talk about what we love, don't we? Whatever it happens to be, family, friends, food, work, sports, our stuff, it flows out of us easily because our hearts and minds are so engaged with whatever has our affections. 
So if we're seeking to root ourselves in Jesus, if we're seeking to be with him, then the overflow of our heart will be able to tell others about him. Jesus is still calling people to himself. He's still calling people to himself. And he's doing that now by his spirit and through his people, through you and through me. Just like the apostles, there isn't qualification or interview process to be able to go make him known. All you need is to know Jesus. There are people all around us every single day in our homes, in our schools, our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, people who don't understand their desperate need for redemption and rescue. People all around us every day who don't understand who Jesus is and how much they need him. Who will tell them if you and I don't? Who will tell them if you and I don't? Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, it means that you heard the good news of grace that, the, that started with Jesus, that was passed on to the apostles. It made its way to you. That's because somebody told you. God in his providence used that person or group of people to tell you. You know why? Because Jesus desired you. He called you to himself. He used these people to call you to repentance and faith. And now, now we have the privilege, we have the opportunity, the calling to go and do the same. So like the apostles, I want to call us to know him and to make him known. To call us to live sent. That we walk out of here every Sunday being encouraged and refreshed in the goodness of God's grace and go out into our world as ambassadors for Christ. Representing him to all that we come in contact with. Just doing your ordinary things of life, but doing it with a gospel intentionality. That means seeking to build real and meaningful relationships with people who don't yet know Jesus, who don't yet know his rescuing grace with the hope of being able to introduce them to him. Since I'm a pastor, I spend a lot of time of my time with Christians. It can be easy to just find myself being inside of a Christian bubble. So over the years, my family and I have sought to build relationships and friendships with people who don't yet know Christ just in the everyday parts of life because we, one, just enjoy them as people, fellow image bearers of God, but also because we want them to experience his grace. So we try to think about our time with our neighbors and do we know them like more than just their names, but actually things that are going on in their lives. I coach baseball teams and my kids participate in that. It's been a great opportunity for us just to get to know those kids, but also their families, some for years and years and years. Amy and I both just started substitute teaching in Fairfax County. Helpful, a little extra money, but also there's a huge need right now in Fairfax County to do that. So I got to hang out with a bunch of eighth graders on Friday. I love middle schoolers. I have one. That's a strange group of people. But man, I get to hang out with them and see these kids, like just to spend time with them, the teachers and administrators. What are those things for you? What does it look like for you to engage people around you who don't know Christ, to build real relationships with them? It takes time. It can be hard. It requires consistency and faithfulness. But man, is it worth it? What does it look like for you? Listen, I want our church to grow. I want to see more people come and worship with us on Sundays. I'm grateful that God brings people that move to the area, other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that want to come and be a part of our church. I love that. I'm thankful for that. But I don't want that to be the only means of our growth as a church. I was talking with Kenneth about this this week. 
We, we long to see people, men and women, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, our friends, cross from death to life to fill these seats, to be baptized, to grow in Christ here. After studying this text this week, God's given me a renewed desire to pray earnestly, earnestly for opportunities and boldness to make Jesus known. Will you pray for the same thing in your own life? We pray for the same thing for our church. Jesus called and sent the apostles and now we too are the called and sent. So whoever you are and wherever you find yourself to be, you, you live where you live, you work where you work, you spend your time doing what you do during the day as a student, whatever it happens to be, because that's part of God's providence for your life. He's established the time and place in which you live. How will you live as a sent one wherever he has you. So let's seek to know him and then to go make him known for the glory of God and for the good of others. Amen.